Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Will. I'm Rachel Cunliffe. And I'm Rachel Wheelhouse. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we reflect on Rishi Sunak's first week as Prime Minister. And you ask us, is he too out of touch to be Prime Minister? We're in Rishi Sunak's first week as Prime Minister. He's been given a bit of a soft landing, I think. Tory MPs were rallying around him at PMQs and he's had a few favourable write-ups in the right-wing press. No surprises there. And obviously the most important thing about whatever he does for the country will be on the economy, which is what I'm sure all our listeners care the most about and is most important for the country. But we will talk a bit about the politics first. There's two things that seem to be dogging him in this first week. The first, courtesy of our amazing deputy political editor, Rachel Wearmouth, is that accusation that he diverted funding from deprived urban areas to places like Tunbridge Wells, which which we have from the horse's mouth. We have a video of him boasting about that to a Conservative association over the summer. Keir Starmer asked him about this at PMQs and Lisa Nandy, the shadow levelling up secretary, has written to the Conservative Party to ask them to investigate. And then secondly, there's the appointment of Suella Braverman back as Home Secretary, having left the post, having had to leave the post only a week earlier for breaking the ministerial code by sending sensitive government documents from her personal email address to someone who wasn't supposed to see them. So these two things seem to be a big question for the supposed integrity that Rishi Sunak spoke about having when he was outside number 10 making his first speech. Should we start on the first thing, Rachel, as we have you here down the line? Obviously, your scoop has been (laughs) very useful for Labour, but still causing trouble for Rishi Sunak a few months on. Yeah, I'm not surprised this got brought up at PMQs. I don't think um, Rishi Sunak's really had a, any time at the front bench since it broke. So it was the Labour Party's first chance to give him a hard time yeah. over it. It led to this really bizarre moment where uh, Rishi Sunak's had a go at Keir Starmer for, for not getting outside of North London, which is the same accusation mm. that Boris Johnson used to throw at Keir Starmer all the time. And he claimed, well, there are deprived areas all over the country. And that got this really big cheer from the Tory backbenchers, which was just bizarre because you're kind of thinking, is, have you thought about the optics of that, <laughs> of cheering on after 12 years of being in government that there, there are deprived areas all over the country? <laughs> That's a good um, point, actually. It's <laughs> <laughs> really weird. But yeah, he, he really seemed to land a, land a blow with it. And it feels like that video is going to be shared all the time up to the general election now. I think it really took off in a way that perhaps nobody quite expected, really. And I think it's because it's, it is... These are words that the now Prime Minister said behind closed doors when he was running for the leaderships. It tells you 
something about what he thinks his priorities yeah, are. And it's very jarring, isn't it? Because this whole idea of Rishi Sunak's premiership is that he is going back to that 2019 manifesto. He actually said the phrase levelling up in his speech, which we didn't really hear at all about from Liz Truss's administration. So the fact that he wanted to do the sort of opposite of levelling up, or at least levelling up Kent or the leafier parts of Kent, suggests that there is a contradiction there. Yeah, and I think he has, in a way, returned to the 2019 manifesto, but the language he's using around it is notably different. I think in the manifesto, it was like millions more invested in our NHS, whereas Rishi Sunak's translated that into a stronger NHS. And obviously that's because we're looking at a different economic picture, so he has to change the language around it slightly. But it's just worth mentioning and worth thinking about because the government's obviously going to need to cling as much as it can to that 2019 manifesto in order to avoid getting more and more calls for a general election because they're not sticking to what Mm. they promised. But similarly, some of the priorities have changed slightly. They have been watered down. So I would expect the opposition to start to hold them to account on it. Maybe ask again about those 40 hospitals, (laughs) (laughs) which I think, which even Tory advisors I've spoken to have laughed when they've mentioned. So we know how serious that is. Rachel, let's talk a little bit about Suella Braverman, because this is a more immediate headache, I think, for Rishi Sunak. It exposes his weakness. He had to bring someone in, a darling of the Tory right, Eurosceptic, used to be chair of the European Research Group, and her nomination for him being the next leader was obviously very important politically for him. But it doesn't look great, does it? No, it really doesn't. So the endorsement came at a crucial time, uh, at a point where Boris Johnson was still in the running before he had withdrawn and disappointed and humiliated a lot of the MPs who backed him. But that's very much last week's news. It's very weird. I got a new Prime Minister for my birthday this year. <laughs> Happy birthday, Rachel. Thank you. It was my birthday on Tuesday. Just what you wish for. A new Prime Minister. Yeah, maybe I'll get another one next year. But clearly it's very obvious what the calculation there was if you want to keep the Brexity Tory rights mm-hmm. of the party on side, then an endorsement like Stella Bradman is very important for neutralising the Boris Johnson threat. And actually, I think it made it very difficult for Penny Mordaunt to recover as well but then you've got to give her a job that she was sacked from less than a week before now we've talked a bit about exactly why she was sacked for and there are two reasons the immediate one and the kind of macro one both of which are really important that the ostensible one is this communication security breach sending a document from the wrong email address now in her resignation letter she made it sound basically like this was a technicality it was a mistake it was four o'clock in the morning it was not a sensitive government document it was to a trusted source and she let everyone know immediately so basically no big deal and what has come out in the last week is that actually uh, it was a sensitive document. It wasn't something that had been signed off. She was sending it to somebody who she might have trusted, but is a a backbench MP who is not in government, who is very hardline on immigration like she is. And the suggestion is that she runs everything past him, even when she shouldn't, because he's not in government. It wasn't at four o'clock in the morning. And she didn't let them know immediately that she'd made this mistake. It was actually the other person who was copied it on the email who reported it and then she admitted it. So it was a much bigger security breach than she made it out to be. And uh, this is, if you've talked to people in in, in Whitehall who, who, who know her, this is part of a trend. She's a bit of a liability. She's being investigated for other things. She's got the nickname Leaky Sue because she has a tendency to do this. Basically, she is a liability from a security perspective, 
in her own right. And then you get to the macro reason for the sacking, which is widely believed to be a massive row between her and Liz Truss on immigration because she is very hardline on immigration, not just reducing illegal immigration, but also reducing student immigration or high skills visas and a lot of the things that the pro-growth wing of the Tory party are really quite keen on. Actually, the public are quite keen on. We're quite keen on doctors and nurses and engineers and computer scientists and even international students coming here. And Swala Braverman is not. Now, that is a fight that she was having with Liz Truss and a fight that she's going to have to have with Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt again. And in fact, the rumours are she basically already is. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a big difficult area for this government because actually immigration is higher than it was before the EU referendum. And obviously, that's not really what they were promising and trying to make a big thing about Labour. I think Rishi Sunak said this in PMQs, which may suggest his political naivety, trying to say Labour is in favour of unlimited immigration, just turns the spotlight back onto the Tories. And actually, this has been noticed. These are talking about it. Why are the immigration numbers so high? Or interesting to see that if they're more liberal on immigration, interesting to see the numbers are higher than they were before. That hasn't been lost on them and um, potentially won't be lost on some of those voters who were less keen on that and were seeing Brexit as as an end to that. I think there's a big row going on within the Tory party about what the Brexit vote was about in terms of immigration. Was it about cutting absolute numbers, which they have comprehensively failed to do? Or was it about having more control and people feeling that they could get the right kind of people in from overseas or not? And there's polling that suggests actually it was the latter. But the Conservative Party has never really properly had that debate and come to a conclusion and resolved that. And so you've got this weird situation now where the single quickest, most effective thing Thing that the government could do for growth and to help stabilise the economic situation would be to relax immigration and allow more workers in. And it's also a sort of quick fix for the NHS. Now, it's not a long term solution, but that is something they could do that would help in the immediate term. And half the Tory party categorically will not do that. Yeah, and that's one to keep an eye on, actually. And especially as Suella Braverman, aside from all this ministerial code breach, story is also a bit of a rogue character like she showed herself at conservative party conference to speak quite independently she suggested that tory mps had staged a coup against that 45p or against the removal of the 45p top rate of tax and she also suggested that britain has a benefit street culture which might have gone down well in the in the reception rooms of tory conference but sounded quite tin-eared considering what people are going through at the moment in terms of their household budgets so you know, she is someone who is probably going to cause a headache for Rishi Sunak from that perspective as well. And then there is the perception of dodgy ministers. So Suella Braverman broke the ministerial code. You also have questions hanging over um, Robert Jenrick as well and that development that he signed off on in Tower Hamlets, which was a scandal, I think, uh, around 2020 and hasn't fully been resolved. And Gavin Williamson as well, who I think he denies that he w- leaked from a national security meeting back under Theresa May. It's, a- it's ancient history now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, this doesn't look good when the idea is that Rishi Sunak is supposed to be the adult in the room cleaning up the reputation of the party. Competence and integrity yeah. and all that, yeah. Okay, and we've got Will Dunn here, our business editor, and I did want to ask you, Will, a bit about the biggest news this week in terms of Britain's economic integrity, which is that the fiscal statement that we were expecting on Halloween has actually been postponed. Why has it been postponed, do you think? And what impact will that have? Yeah, so it's been postponed to the 17th of November. 
I think it's fair enough to give a new government a chance to to spend more time on what will be such an important set of decisions for the economy. And it's particularly necessary to do so in the wake of a kind of hastily prepared and badly telegraphed mini-budget that wrought, wrought havoc. And so I think they've, they've learned the lessons from that. And I think that one of the big lessons is the space that you need to put between government announcements and announcements from the Bank of England. So before the, the mini-budget, the day before, the Bank of England announced that it was going to start quantitative tightening, so selling bonds. And that, that caused gilt yields to start rising. And then the day after, uh, the government announced that it was going to start selling lots and lots of bonds and more than the markets had previously expected. And that on in the bond market, the market for people to, to buy the government's debt, those two big chunks of supply would have had a serious effect on demand, on prices, and therefore on the yields, which are what, what investors charge the government to, to lend it money. The blame for that all went on mm. the government and Probably rightly so, because it was a, a reckless fiscal statement. But the having a good bit of space between some fairly significant decisions that the bank is going to be taken. So they will start selling bonds again on the 1st of November. There's a the Monetary Policy Committee meeting on the 3rd of November, where they will likely announce an interest rate mm-hmm. rise. At a time when markets have already been spooked once, it makes sense to have some space between the bank taking those big steps and then the government announcing its plans to give investors a bit of time to price mm. in the, the what's happening, the decisions that are being Yeah, made. and there seems to be a feeling, at least among Rishi Sunak backers, that waiting will mean that the cost of borrowing goes down further, he's having calmed the market slightly after the mayhem that you outlined after the mini budget, that with borrowing cheaper, it will give him a little bit more wiggle room. Obviously, they've warned, I think, Jeremy Hunt warned about eye-watering decisions and he and Sunak mentioned difficult decisions when he was making his speech. But perhaps there will be less call for huge cuts if borrowing is slightly cheaper. And also, I'm picking up that they're a little bit more relaxed about carrying on borrowing if the markets trust them. I wonder if you think that there is a prospect of that for those listeners who are worried about more cuts to public services, for example. I think Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have got quite a lot of credit for settling the markets and they haven't settled that much. So gilt yields, the so the, the kind of the interest rate on new borrowing, if you like, are still really high. Mm. I think they're about the highest they've been on 10-year gilts for, for over a decade, since about 2011. So the cost of new borrowing to the government is still a lot higher than it was a year ago. And there was this big spike following the mini budget in what investors charges for their money. But that hasn't come back down to where it was before the mini budget. But yeah, still high. Yeah, I think they are helping to set the markets by saying, we're going to have to do some really <laughs> nasty stuff. So, yeah, I, don't, I think borrowing will still be expensive and still tens of billions of fiscal tightening to do, especially with Jeremy Hunt talking about the need to get debt falling over the medium term. He needs to say mm-hmm. that in order to to get investors to price government debt better and things like changing the energy plan to a you know, kind of six months of universal benefit and then targeting it. That really takes the pressure off. But yeah, it's, it's it, in the long term, borrowing's probably not going to get a whole lot cheaper because it's been so cheap for so long that it's in the very 
long time scale. It doesn't, it's been the other way around. It's been really cheap and it's returning to normal. So yeah, I think, I, th- I think the, they're right to say that they're going to probably have to take some really unpleasant decisions and yeah sorry to not be too no thank you and i think on labor's part they're a bit fearful that those difficult decisions will land really in the next for the next government in the next parliament and so they're slightly concerned that they're going to push them back and leave them with basically nothing to spend so we'll see what happens on the 17th of november the Rachels, I want to give you a chance to come in on this if you want. Otherwise, we'll move on to the next section. I think the psychology of it is really interesting. This idea that Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have to say, oh, we're going to make some really tough decisions. It's going to be really nasty for everyone. We're going to have to cut spending and raise taxes. And they say that in order to inspire confidence in international investors who then go, oh, yes, we can trust this government. And then the interest rate comes down. (laughs) And then the hope is that if the interest rate comes down enough, those nasty spending decisions don't have to be quite as severe as they would have been had you said, no, we're not going to do it. It's a really interesting sort of psychology (laughs) experiment. But I and I hope it works. But I think like broadly, Will's point that we've had ultra low interest rates for over a decade. We, I say we, the the country, households with their mortgages, businesses with their business loans, investors, just the world has got used to low interest rates. And whole business models have been built on the basis that they will stay low. And actually, okay, they shouldn't have gone up as high as they did with the, as, as quickly as they did with the spike after the mini budget. But this is a return to normality, except that our economic system is kind of not prepared for it and therefore everyone's panicking and you're getting people like Martin Lewis the the money saving expert who I know and as you've interviewed who are saying like the government needs to introduce some kind of help for homeowners who won't be able to afford their mortgages because they took out all these all this mortgage debt with very low interest rates and if their mortgage rates go up they won't be able to afford it and they could go into negative equity or they could lose their homes which is a very real concern Mm -hmm. for people but you're like hang on why were they allowed why were people allowed to take on so much debt at rates that kind of everyone knew were going to go up eventually does it really make sense to have taxpayers funding people's mortgages when lots of people are renting and their rents have gone up far higher than mortgage rates and it's just this idea now that the government might need to step in and help people with their mortgages or help businesses because the interest rates are going up on rates that we should have known were going to go up eventually, even if they've gone up faster than expected. It's absolutely mad. Yeah, it's a kind of fundamental decision that the governments and central bankers have to make now is, do you try to prolong the era of illusory growth or do you take the pain and inject some realism and take the political consequences of doing that? I think it's still about 30 billion of cuts that they're going to have cuts or, or tax mm. rises that they're going to have to find in the in the budget on 17th of November. And it'll be quite a, a delicate balance. PMQ's Sunak was asked again about, for example, welfare going up in line with inflation, which he promised earlier this year, and he didn't give any guarantees on that. So it's there's still going to be quite a lot of compromises that they're going to have to find. And I don't, it's not quite clear yet where that's going to fall. I think that has like big implications for his new, his new cabinet and whether they're whether you end up seeing resignations from that. For example, Ben Wallace has really went out hard during the last few days. The latest leadership contest over the weekend, say, leaning towards Boris Johnson. Quite a few people read that as him saying defence spending has to go up to 3% of GDP by 2030. Mm. It's like trying to push a guarantee out of Rishi Sunak. But there are going to have to be compromises and not everyone in cabinet is going to be happy about them. So 
it's quite a delicate balance. I'm saying delicate simply because I'm sick of hearing the word. <laughs> yes, yeah. Good use there. I also think we don't even know whether Rishi Sunak wants to put national insurance back up. That was his policy to raise national insurance. Obviously, it's been repealed, but he said he wants a strong NHS and this is the health and social care levy, so it's called. So we don't even know that. And that could cause a big row if he tries to reverse the reversal. Yeah, and it's also big infrastructure spending as well. HS2, Northern Powerhouse Rail, what does he do about those things? It's, although the picture's looking slightly brighter, it's not like the, it's not like it's going to be plain sailing for it's him. It's almost like we should have borrowed for big capital projects when interest rates were next to zero. <laughs> During that whole decade when government borrowing was really cheap, maybe we should have borrowed then. It's, it's interesting that we didn't. <laughs> Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Edward Docks on the death of Boris the Clown. When did the booing start? He was never exactly sure. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents. May Robson on why women's football is the more beautiful game. Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain Leah Williamson can't afford not to have a plan B. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call. You ask us. You ask us. So this question is from Nick. Thanks for writing in. He asks, how does Rishi Sunak, who has now become prime minister, differ from the Rishi Sunak whose spring statement only seven months ago landed so badly and showed him to be quite out of touch with the needs of the country. I love this question because everyone has forgotten about Rishi Sunak's own mini budget moment, which was only in March. And we were calling it a mini budget back then. That was when basically roundly believed to have failed to protect the poorest from rising prices. I think he reduced fuel duty, raised the threshold slightly of the national insurance rise, did a bit around the edges on the sort of council funding for people who were suffering a hardship. But there really was nothing in there to protect the poorest over such a difficult period. And the polling showed it. And in the end, at the end of that month, he had to come back and announce a whole £15 billion cost of living package, including a windfall tax, which is something that he wanted to resist. So it shows, doesn't it? First of all, it shows the fact, like our questioner suggests, that he was out of touch with the needs of the people who are on the lowest incomes going through this crisis, who are suffering the worst of it. 
But second of all, it showed a political naivety. It landed badly, affected him in the polls. And then, of course, the following month, you had the tax scandal regarding his wife, which compounded that. And I think it led a lot of people to believe that his future sort of at the top of the Conservative Party was fading. Rachel, do you remember that time? Do you remember when he was his reputation just fell, having been so popular during the pandemic? Yeah. Firstly, can we, can we just pause and talk about how bizarre the last six months have been? Like if you're, We measure our lives out in fiscal statements now. And in new prime ministers and new chancellors, it feels like another era. But yeah, what I think happened there with Rishi Sunak's March mini-budget was his personal poll ratings were really high after COVID and he'd come out of nowhere. Boris Johnson had appointed him Chancellor just before the COVID pandemic because Sajid Javid had resigned and he wasn't someone people were familiar with. And the first thing that he did was the furlough scheme and support for businesses Mm -hmm. during COVID. And he's got quite a good presence. He's quite reassuring. He's quite slick. And people during COVID, okay, this guy understands he's giving us loads of money. And he had really high personal poll ratings. And then he started doing things that actually ideologically he's committed to. So he's a fiscal conservative. He really believes in balancing the books in a way that is different from Liz Trust, really believes in we we shouldn't be spending more than we're getting in tax and bringing down borrowing. So at the moments when he started to cut that money back, whether it was winding down furlough or reversing the increase to universal credit or rouse over free school meals, or again, this kind of lack of energy help, energy support, his poll rating started to fall. And I feel like there was was naivety in the Count. They were like, hang on, people love our guy. And it's, no, people love the fact that your guy has for the last two years been giving them lots of free money. It's not because they think he's a great person. It's because he was giving them nice things. And actually, when he turns that money tap off, people don't like him. And rightly so. And I think there was real shock and yes, surprise. Absolutely. And then his popularity started ticking up again after he introduced after that he big cost of living giving package. people more yeah. money. It's not difficult it's not to difficult. work out. I'm not sure he's changed as an individual politician, but a lot of the things within his party mm-hmm. have, right? So I think where, during that fiscal statement, he was like, wanted to put, for example, he wanted to hike corporation tax up the following year. And that kind of, his party hated that. A lot of the Brexiteers were thinking, we've come out of the European Union so that we can take a different path. And then he also came in with the national insurance rise and they just hated the level of tax rises that he was prepared to do. He framed it at the time as paying for the COVID pandemic. And obviously what we've had since then is a prime minister who was absolutely gunning for a load of tax cuts and it's all gone totally wrong for them. So I think he's won the argument, so that's changed. But I think the kind of interesting side of the coin is that like the strategy for how you take on somebody like Rishi Sunak, who is a multi millionaire chancellor his kind of own personal wealth with within it is an interesting thing for labor so i think to to promote that fuel duty cut if everyone remembers yes this was a real low moment for him wasn't it (laughs) yeah and it was like he's done something to try and help people but then he tries to be like a sort of man of the people and the sort of pr operation that goes with it is it was just, it can be really jarring for Rishi Sunak. He couldn't he didn't know how to use his debit card at the till and stuff. And people and he still had his microphone on while he was putting his petrol in and stuff. And everyone was, and it wasn't even his car, was it? He borrowed a less fancy car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember which kind of car it was, but it wasn't his car. And um, at PMQs, I think I think Keir Starmer had spoken to his shadow cabinet before that, and they said that they, all there was broad agreement within the group apparently that it's the, it would be the wrong path to take to kind of attack Rishi Sunak's personal wealth because it's like the politics of envy and it looks it looks pretty 
ugly, but they're quite comfortable to take him on mm-hmm. looking out of touch and being like unable to understand people's everyday concerns. And then you had somebody, I think it was Richard Bergen, the sort of really left-wing Labour backbencher who who got up and did what Richard Bergen does <laughs> and had a real pop at the PM and called for a wealth tax. And you could see that just Richard Sunak was very, very happy about yeah. that. So it's kind of... I think the way Keir Starmer handles someone like Rishi Sunak, you have to be really careful. Yeah, I think I, I do encourage all our listeners to read your piece about this, about how Labour is planning to counter Rishi Sunak, because it was interesting, your detail about that conversation they had over potential attacks on his wealth and how they didn't think that was a particularly good idea. But you, of course, you are never going to stop noises off from more left-wing Labour backbenchers. And of course, you know, the country is going through a cost of living crisis and the temptation is there to suggest that someone who wears these expensive suits, etc., doesn't understand what people are going through. In fact, Liz Truss's camp did the same thing, didn't they, when they were in that original leadership Claire's, campaign? Claire's yeah. accessories, earrings, yeah. and he's got a fancy suit. I've just looked it up and it was a red Kia Rio and actually belonged to a Sainsbury's <laughs> This is like one employee. of those announcements where it's like, please, can you move your... <laughs> please move Could your the car. owner of the red <laughs> Kia Rio be filled up by the Chancellor of the Exchequer? Yeah. <laughs> Please get in touch with the New Statesman so we can interview you. Will, um, what are your memories? I remember doing the the maths on the, the on the Kia Rio and to the size of its fuel tank and the cost of fuel that day, and figuring out that a Sainsbury's worker on their standard wage would have more than doubled their daily pay by having their car filled up by Rishi Sunak. Wow! <laughs> wow! Wow! Maths for the people there, Will. <laughs> um, do you want to come in on that ill-fated? March 2022 spring statement? Yeah, I think there probably was a bit of a peek at Rishi Unchained <laughs> and maybe a preview of what we will see mm. in the in the autumn budget and in the months to come. Yeah, it's, yeah, like we've said, his fiscal conservatism has been disguised by a global pandemic and levels of borrowing and spending that would have made John Donald blush. <laughs> and yeah, but he's right to say that there are measures that, you know, now need to be taken that in order to cope with the um, the level of borrowing that we've had. Yeah, the UK is not in a, in a great position economically. Uh, there are serious measures that need to be taken. Whether those measures are, as you would expect, Sunak and Hunt to say, tightening public spending or, or whether, as Labour would have it, raising taxes is, is another debate. But yeah, I think things will see more of the real Rishi. Not the red Rishi. I think it was, it was also really interesting at PMQ's. I can't understand why Keir Starmer decided to take him on a non-doms date. And it's obviously it's like personally embarrassing because of Rishi Sunak's wife, Akshata Murthy, but previously having non-dom status. But he promised it didn't resile from kind of making changes to it. Yeah, he didn't come out in support of it at all, which would suggest that might be one of the things they're going to look at, which would, wouldn't save billions of billions, but save Yeah, and some political face as well. This is a really good discussion, but sorry, we do have to wrap up because we have come to the end of our time. Rachel, there was a question from a listener, actually, that we wanted to quickly answer before we finish. This is Alvin, who has asked for the name of Ben Walker's cat, who appeared in a video of a previous podcast earlier this week. And we can tell you that Ben's cat is called Lily. My cat is called Cleo. Our producer, Adrian, has a cat called Tina. And all three cats are utterly instrumental in the production of the New States podcast none were harmed and none were harmed (laughs) and if you want to ask us a question for you ask us you can now just go to our website newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us and submit one you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anusha kellyan and my colleagues will dunn rachel cunliffe and rachel wearmouth 
We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.